الحمد للہ الحمد للہ الذي ہدانا لہذا وما کنا لنہتدی لولا ان ہدان اللہ وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له له الحمد وله الملك يحيي ويميت بيده الخير وهو على كل شيء قدير وأشهد أن محمدًا عبد الله ورسوله وصفيه وخليله أرسله الله للناس نذيرًا وبشيرًا لقد كان لكم في رسول الله أسوة حسنة لمن كان يرجو الله واليوم الآخر وذكر الله كثيرا من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد رشد ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد ضل ضلالا بعيدا أوصيكم ونفسي أولا بتقوى الله وطاعته وأحذركم من عسيانه ومخالفة أمره أما بعد فإن خير الحديث كتاب الله وأحسن الهدي هدي محمد وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار يقول الله عز وجل وهو أصدق القائلين في كتابه الكريم ما أرسلنا من قبلك إلا رجالا نوحي إليهم فاسألوا أهل الذكر إن كنتم لا تعلمون Brothers and sisters, committed Muslims This ayah that was just quoted comes from Surah Al-Nahl and it is the 43rd ayah in that surah a very similar ayah appears as the seventh one in surah al-anbiya the only difference being that the arabic preposition min is not included in the ayah in surah al-anbiya Roughly translated, the ayah means And even before you, O Muhammad We never sent as one of our apostles Anyone Other than they were mortal beings whom we inspire and so if this is not obvious to them meaning the Arabian mushriks 
And so if this is not obvious to them, then tell them to go and consult with this group called Ahl al-Dhikr. So, so this ayah it refers to a group called Ahl al-Dhikr. And so the context in which this ayah was revealed was that the Jahili Mushriks around the Prophet ﷺ in Mecca they could not accept the notion that revelation would come through another human being much like themselves. They felt that if revelation was to come to man that it ought to come through the agency of angels or some other supernatural agent of that kind. And so because they were well acquainted with the background, the upbringing, the character, and the personality of Muhammad, and he being a human being just like themselves, they began to poke fun at the fact that's, that someone from a faction of Quraysh, which was not the most prominent faction of Quraysh, meaning it was not the wealthiest or the most powerful faction of Quraysh, that someone from within a less powerful faction was receiving revelation. So they challenged him, they made fun of him, they ridiculed him, they put obstacles in the way of the projection and the promotion of the revelation that was coming to him. And so in this ayah, Allah Ta'ala is comforting his final prophet, and so he tells him that never before, even before your mission, was there any anyone but a mortal man that received inspiration from Allah? That in fact all prophets were human beings. And so he's telling his prophet, well, you know, if if, if you all don't believe me, then go ask this group called Ahl al-Dhikr. And that's what we are here to talk about today. But in order to understand the meaning of who Ahlul Dhikri is, we must first liberate our understanding of the word Dhikr from centuries upon centuries of Muslim tradition. For generally when the word Dhikr is mentioned, there's an image that flashes through our minds of someone repeating the word Allah hundreds of times a day. Or maybe certain ayat are repeated tens or maybe scores of times a day or certain du'as or certain names of Allah are repeated in this manner in sort of an organized setting, whether as an individual or as a group of individuals. And what is also sort of obvious in this mental image is that this repetition is taking place without a mental, a psychological and an emotional engagement with whatever is being recited. In fact, when you take a look at the word dhikr in the Qur'an, what it really comes down to is trying to conscientize Allah, trying to make Him part of your personal and your social conscience. Or in other words, in reviewing His guidance, 
his ayat and reflecting upon the words that he has communicated through his Prophet in such a way that those words begin to gel as a commitment in the mind. And then through social engagement, through public engagement, those commitments settle in the heart as a conviction. To such a point that the one who has those convictions begins to look at the world around him and he begins to understand how that world works. How human history unfolds. How the prime mover of that human history is Allah Himself. So one who is engaged in a dhikr, he begins to understand these things. So once again, the end of the ayah, you know, when the Prophet is communicating to the Arabian mushriks around him, he's telling them, he's advising them that, okay, if you don't believe me, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلُ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ If you claim that you don't understand, if you claim that you cannot accept me as a prophet, then go ask this group, Ahl al-Dhikr, to either confirm or deny what happened in the past. So notice in the ayah, how Allah Ta'ala doesn't say, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلِ الْعِلْمِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ that go and ask the people of knowledge if you have no knowledge. Well, it makes sense. One would think that if you have no knowledge, then go and ask the people of knowledge. But the ayah doesn't say that. It says, go and ask the people of dhikr. The ayah also doesn't say, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الْكِتَابِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ that go and ask Ahl al-Kitab if you claim you don't know. The ayah doesn't say that either. In fact, once again, the ayah says, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ So let's back up a little bit and consider this. Why wouldn't this ayah say Ahl al-Ilm or Ahl al-Kitab? In the world that we live in today, we can say that for the past three or four hundred years the world is being run by offshoots of Ahl al-Kitab. I don't think anybody has any dispute about this. It's pretty obvious. And yet in this world right now we are inundated with multiple crises. There's a crisis of the environment which suggests that if human beings continue to behave in the manner that they are behaving, that the world will become environmentally unlivable. There is a crisis of the weapons of mass destruction. That if human beings continue with the aggressive postures that the power players in the world have, against those who do not have power, that it will ultimately lead to the use of nuclear weapons, which will also make the world unlivable for human beings. There is a financial crisis in the world, which is unsustainable for the vast majority of human beings. There is a usage of resource crisis in the world, where 12% of the world's people use 75% of the world's resources and that is un unsustainable moving into the future. And so this Ahl al-Kitab running the world as they are running it, can it be said that they know how things work? 
And so if somebody needed answers, why should they go to Ahlul Kitab? Especially when Allah Ta'ala is saying, if you need answers, go to Ahlul Dhikr. And the same can be said about Ahl Al-Ilm, Ahl Al-Ilm. Same thing can be said about them. In the world today, as far as quantity is concerned, there are more people of knowledge than there have ever been in the world. And there are more people with more knowledge as individuals than there have ever been in the world. And yet, we are still confronted by the same crises. And so if you need real answers, do you go to the people of knowledge? Allah Ta'ala is advising you differently. He's saying, go to Ahlul Dhikr. And so who is Ahlul Dhikr? And to get an answer to this question, let us go to another ayah in Allah's book. And Allah says, الَّذِينَ يَذْقُرُ اللَّهَ قِيَامًا وَقُرُودًا وَعَلَى جُنُوبِهِمْ وَيَتَفَكَّرُونَ فِي خَلْقِ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ رَبَّنَا مَا خَلَقْتَهَا بَعْطِلًا سُبْحَانَكْ فَقِنَا عَذَابَ النَّارِ So once again roughly translated this means The ones who, uh, referring to, uh, to, to people of dhikr, the ones who conscientize Allah in their active moments, in their moments of reflection, and in those moments before they are ready to turn in to go to bed. Those who think about the nature of the creation of the heavens and the earth and then reach the conclusion that oh our Lord you have not created any of this without meaning and purpose all glory belongs to you and shield us from the impending doom of the fire And so Allah Ta'ala is communicating to us the characteristics of Ahl al-Dhikr. That whether they are sitting or standing, whether they are active in a movement, or whether they are sitting at home reflecting, even right before they get ready to go to bed, they are thinking about Allah. They are thinking about His power. His authority, His command, His counsel, His advice. There is not a moment in their lives that they are not thinking about Allah. They are not thinking about His creation. Even to the extent that when they go to bed, they expect to be dreaming about what they are thinking about. And so these are the people who begin to figure out how things work in the world. How the hand of Allah is involved in the unfolding history of man. These are people who do not need to refer to history books to see how the history of man unfolds. They don't need to, they don't need to read in the history written by men about why civilizations fall and why they rise. Just by understanding Allah's words, they understand how civilizations rise and why they begin to fall.
just to help you get a better handle in an experiential way about what this ayah means. Qiyaman wa qurudan wa ala junubihim just to help you get a handle on what I'm talking about that these people are constantly in a state of trying to conscientize Allah Consider the discovery of the chemical structure of benzene. The chemical structure of this particular compound was discovered at a time when its particular chemical properties didn't match up with the known structure of chemical compounds that were discovered to that point in that day some 120 or 150 years ago so at the time that researchers were looking to try to discover the chemical structure of this particular compound they could not figure out whether it was a flat whether it was a ring structure or whether it was a straight hydrocarbon structure where carbon atoms are connected together in a straight line because the, the properties of this particular chemical it didn't agree or it didn't sort of were not congruent with the chemical structure of ringed compounds because the rings that were discovered to that point were skewed there they had an angle to them they were not flat and insofar as the properties of straight line chemical carbon structures the property of this particular compound benzene didn't agree with the property of those structures and so the researchers were in a quandary what is the chemical structure of this particular compound and so one of these researchers, he was working on this problem night and day, week after week, month after month, and for perhaps years. He could think of nothing else. It was like an obsession with him. He'd wake up thinking about it. He'd go to bed and dream about it. And it got to such a point that he began to drink heavily. And on one of these occasions, he had too much to drink, went home and he was sitting in front of his fire at home. And he was sort of passing in and out of consciousness. And as he was looking at the fire, he began to notice that the wisps of the flame as they were rising up, that they began to become serpents. And he noticed that one of these serpents circled around on itself and bit its tail. And from this particular experience, he realized that the, the chemical structure of benzene is a flat ring. And then he set about proving this thesis with a set of experiments which ultimately proved to be true. And so it is also with the person who created the foundational technology for the telephone. This particular person was trying to solve a problem. His mother was going deaf. And at the time that he lived, this is about a hundred years ago, people who were going deaf were considered, old, older people especially, were considered to be going senile because they wouldn't respond 
to people talking to them. But this person, he had enough acumen to realize that his mother was going deaf and not going senile. And he still wanted to be able to communicate with her without having to raise his voice to a very loud tone. And so he set about trying to solve this particular problem. But the impediment in his way is that he didn't understand how sound traveled through the air. And so he was trying to figure out how sound travels through the air. And again, this became an obsession with him. He tried to figure this out night and day, week after week, month after month. And he was, he had no other problem on his mind. He could think of nothing else. He'd wake up thinking about it, he'd go to bed thinking about it. It didn't matter. He had to help out his mother with her hearing problem. And that was the motivation for trying to figure out how to create a device so that she could hear better. And so one day he's standing out and looking at his estate and he notices a stream winding from one place to another. And all of a sudden he realized the sound travels through the air in waves. And he, and he too set about a set of experiments to prove his hypothesis. And it ultimately proved to be true and then a few years later the telephone was born. This is what it means. And they think with the creation that Allah has given them. This is what it means. These are Ahl al-Dhikr. That they have a social problem at hand and nothing else can occupy their thinking. And nothing else can occupy their thinking except how to leverage Allah's guidance, His command, His counsel to figure out the solution to that problem. And so now with that backdrop, let's transition to the real world, to the world around us today. In the world that we live in, if we wanted to know who Ahl al-Mal are, the people of wealth, well, we see lists all over the place. There's a, there are lists that come out every year of the 500 wealthiest people in the world. And if you wanted to know who Ahl al-Quwa are, the people of power, well, just look around you. They're the prime ministers, the presidents, and the kings. And if we wanted to know who the people of influence are, well, there's a list that comes out every year of the 100 most influential people on earth. These could be religious figures, they could be scientists, they could be social activists, they could be a, a bunch of people in a bunch of other different fields. They could be businessmen. And if we wanted a list of the most influential scholars in the world, the people of ilm, well, not too many years ago, perhaps two or three years ago, somebody came out with a list of the 100 most influential Islamic scholars in the world. But I ask you, brothers and sisters, hearing this ayah, فَاسْأَلُوا أَحْلُ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ is there a list of the 100 most influential mudakkirin in the world? Do we have a list of who belongs in this particular class of people, Ahlul Dhikr? Like if I was, if I wanted to know in the world who belongs to Ahlul Dhikr, would I be able to point them out that this person belongs to Ahlul Dhikr? Allah Ta'ala is pointing to a class of people in His Qur'an. He is alerting us to the fact that these people exist in the world, but we don't know who they are. We know the people of wealth. We know the people of power. We know the people of influence. But the people that Allah wants us to know, we don't know who they are. 
If you don't know something, Allah Ta'ala is telling you, go to Ahlul Dhikr. Okay, who are they? These are people I'd want to know. They know how things work. They can communicate how things work. They can tell us how things work. But they remain hidden from view. If a short list of such people were to be composed, who would you put on it? Would the Pope be on that list? What about the Dalai Lama? What about the Grand Mufti of some Muslim country? Do they know how things work? And if they know how things work, do they have the political and institutional power to make things work in such a way that there's transformative change on the ground? And we understand that transformative change is, is needed because just a few minutes ago we listed all the crises that the world's people of today have to confront. And in asking these types of questions, it ultimately boils down to the question of leadership. On the short list of key issues for the Muslims to deal with, one of them has to be the issue of leadership. We Muslims just do not have enough effective leaders. We sort of rely on a hadith of the Prophet alayhi wa alihi salatu in which he says that the successors to the Anbiya are the ulama. That after him there are no more prophets and those who sort of fill in the role of the prophets are the ulama. The Islamic ulama. And so we try to process the meaning of this hadith But most of us try to process that meaning without filtering it through these particular ayat of the Qur'an. And not even going that far, we don't even understand the meaning of the word Nabi. We have not yet liberated the word Nabi from its translation into the English language, the word Prophet. We have not liberated the meaning of the word Nabi from the meaning of the word Prophet. For in the Western Judeo-Christian context, the word prophet refers to someone who discloses the future or performs miracles. But within the Islamic frame of reference, the word Nabi doesn't refer to those same responsibilities. In fact, those are considered to be a very small portion of a Nabi's responsibilities that is performing miracles or disclosing the future. The main responsibility of a Nabi or a Rasul is to lead his people in a principal struggle against tyranny and injustice. To show his people how to prepare for that struggle through dhikr and taqwa. To show his people how to execute that struggle. How to launch that struggle. And how to sustain the gains of that struggle once victory is guaranteed to those who struggle in Allah's cause. That is the responsibility of a Nabi. But that's not the same as a Prophet. And so why is it that a Nabi or a Prophet is the one who ends up leading that struggle. Because he has the best idea of what to do. He has the best idea of how to do it, when to do it, who to employ to do it, and how to hold those people accountable for what they said they would do. In a word, it's the Prophet or the Nabi who has the clarity. The clarity that none of his flock have. 
Where everybody else sees fog, he sees a clear path. And so the key difference between leaders and all the members of their flock is that the leader has clarity. He's not necessarily the smartest person around. He's not the most influential person around and definitely he's not the wealthiest person around. But he has invested his time and his experience in trying to understand how things work. He can see a clear path where nobody else can see it. And this is the difference between Ahl al-Dhikr and Ahl al-Ilm. As far as Ahl al-Dhikr is concerned, there is a clarity because there is a history of engagement with social problems that are filtered through Allah's guidance and His counsel. And so it makes sense moving forward that if we do have to have leaders that they ought to probably come from this class of people known as Ahl al-Dhikr One Quranic personality that comes to mind in this regard is Talut At this particular time in prophetic history, Bani Israel needed somebody to lead them against the forces of Goliath. And so their prophet at the time chose Talut to lead them. And as soon as Talut was chosen, Bani Israel started complaining. Well, he's not a king. He doesn't have status. He doesn't have experience doesn't have knowledge and yet what they didn't realize is that this was a particular person who had spent his time engaged with Allah's guidance and he knew how things work and he proved it when the initial would-be soldiers under his command were taken through their paces and when they got to the river, he told them not to drink. And the vast majority of them drank from the river. But the few who did not drink went on with him to confront the army of Goliath. Now, there were not thousands of them. Perhaps there was, you know, there were only scores of them. But the important thing here is that he knew, he knew he could win with the few, but lose with the liabilities. The many. He knew that. But as far as Bani Israel is concerned, they wanted somebody with status to lead them. They're concerned about appearances, not about victory. And if I was to compare this to the Muslim world today, by and large, across the Muslim world, you know very well that the people of wealth are not revered or respected. Point to any working class Muslim who has a high regard for the royals of Arabia. And by and large, all across the Muslim world, the people that are in power over them are not respected or revered. Although this is changing rapidly, the one class of people that are respected and revered in the majority of the Muslim world are the Islamic scholars. And once again, I reiterate that this is changing rapidly. But nonetheless, this is still the situation. That if you were to ask the people who they respect, who they honor, who they have reverence for, they'll point, a lot of them, to an Islamic scholar. And so these are the people of status in the world. And unfortunately, 
these are the people that Muslims are looking to for leadership. And they turned a blind eye to what Allah Ta'ala is telling them right there in the Quran. If you need answers, turn to Ahlul Dhikr. He doesn't say turn to Ahlul Ilm. And once again, I reiterate that these people of Ahlul Dhikr, they may not be the smartest people in the crowd. They may not be the most influential people in the crowd. They may not be the wealthiest. They may not have the power, but they know how things work. And if you want to follow someone, you better be sure that the one you're following knows how things work. So we're talking about clarity as a distinguishing feature of leaders, of prophets, of Ahlul Dhikr. But what does it really mean? to us people who are experiencing real problems on the ground. What does it really mean? And to that we refer to certain ayat in Allah's book. And they are particularly relevant today. La ikraha fi al-deen qad tabayyan al-rushdu min al-ghay faman yakfur bil-taaguti wa yu'min billah فَقَدْ إِسْتَمْسَكَ بِالْعُرْوَةِ الْوُثْقَ لَنْفِصَامَ لَهَا وَاللَّهُ سَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ This is a, an often quoted ayah. All of us know what it means. But nonetheless, I'll go ahead and translate it. Commitments can... Convictions cannot be coerced. Why? Because the right path is, is distinct from the wrong path. And so whoever rejects the concentration of power, tyranny, injustice, and then commits securely to Allah, then he has grabbed on or latched on to an unfailing support which will never give way. And Allah is the one who hears all and knows all. In another ayah, Allah Ta'ala says, أَلَمْ تَرَى إِلَى الَّذِينَ يَزْعُمُونَ أَنَّهُمْ آمَنُوا بِمَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْكَ وَمَا أُنزِلَ مِنْ قَبْلِكَ يُرِيدُونَ أَنْ يَتَحَاقَمُوا إِلَى الطَّاغُوتِ وَقَدْ أُمِرُوا أَنْ يَكْفُرُوا بِهِ وَيُرِيدُ الشَّيْطَانُ أَنْ يُضِلَّهُمْ ضَلَالًا بَعِيدًا Haven't you seen those who claim to be securely committed to what was revealed to you and what was revealed to prophets in the past and yet they defer to the rule of the tyrants and the unjust. And yet they were told to reject these taghut. And it is sh shaitan's desire to, re to lead them far astray. And so here we're talking about clarity. in the same breath that we are talking about Islamic scholars. And obviously the reason that I bring this up is because you're well aware of the news. You know what's going on. And so the point that's being made here is that if you have Islamic scholars and they are having trouble leveraging their scholarship to decide who or who is not a taghut in the world as obvious as it, is, as it is today, then the only thing that you can get from those scholars is an increase in your knowledge. But they cannot give you direction. If you want direction, if you want to be on a clear path ahead, then return 
to Allah's ayat in, in the Quran. Fasalu ahl dhikri in kuntum la ta'alamun. If you do not know, then ask ahl al-dhikr. Aqulu qawli hadha wa astaghfirullaha li wa lakum fastaghfiruhu yaghfir lakum fastrushiduhu yushidkum. Alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah I don't know how many of you have heard But yesterday A person by the name of Zainul Abidin Ibn Ali passed away. Now some of you may recognize the name to be the ex-despot of Tunisia. He was the first of these dictators and tyrants to be overthrown in the so-called Arab Spring that took place some years ago. And ever since he was overthrown, he was taking it easy or chilling as they say in Saudi Arabia. This is the resort for the world's has-been dictators and despots. And so his final day came yesterday. Important thing once again to know is that he was housed and being sort of given royal treatment in that sort of club med for despots in Arabia. And whatever remaining time we have left today, I just want to talk a little bit about the missile attack on the Aramco refinery facilities in Saudi Arabia. The one of the first things that gets lost in the coverage that you see in the mainstream media is that this particular attack was not an aggressive move but a retaliatory move and it's important to keep this in mind because most of the major retaliatory destruction that has taken place in the geographical confines of Saudi Arabia has been done in retaliation for scores or perhaps hundreds of civilians that have been killed by, by Saudi airstrikes. In this particular instance, even though the Aramco bombings are the main feature of these stories in the news, what you don't hear about is that two weeks ago, Saudi airstrikes, and keep in mind that those airstrikes are sponsored and supported by American weapons, British weapons, European weapons. That there was an airstrike which killed a hundred civilians in Ansarullah and Houthi held territories. And it was in retaliation for that airstrike that this particular bombing of the Aramco refineries took, pl took place. I I'm just pointing this out because that gets lost in the way that the media covers the news.
The second, the second thing to note about these airstrikes is the fact that Saudi Arabia has the third largest military budget in the whole world after China and the United States. Now you tell me, what's a little country of 26 million people doing with the third largest military budget in the whole world? And if you measured it a little differently as a percentage of GDP, Saudi Arabia has the largest military budget in the whole world. Under the previous administration, the US presidential administration, they bought $110 billion worth of weapons. And under the current administration, which has a businessman in the White House, and all he's interested in is squeezing anyone and everyone for as much money as he can get. And he knows that there's a cash cow in the Gulf. And so he intends to squeeze three times that amount of the previous administration from these same royals. Something on the order of $350 billion over the next few or several years. And so despite having the third largest military budget in the world, where that area is under constant surveillance of satellites, of AWACS airplanes, of this kind of radar technology, and that kind of surveillance technology, and what have you, the best stuff apparently that money can buy, how is it possible that with all that money spent, and with all those people trained, and with all those advisors from foreign countries, that the poorest country in the Arab world, and one of the poorest countries in the world, was able to launch an attack that destroyed half of your economic center. Is anybody asking them, was it, was it worth it to spend $220 billion on those weapons? If you couldn't prevent these people who just came into technology from destroying an, econ an economic or the major economic center in your country. And what does it say about the United States? The United States is supposed to be protecting them. This is a US satellite. This is a key pin in the U.S. projection of power all around the world. The fact that Saudi Arabia agreed to a deal in 1973 to sell its oil in dollars and dollars only means that the United States has basically been getting the oil for free. Every other country in the world has to have a reserve of dollars in order to buy oil. All the United States has to do is to print dollars. That's all it has to do. Everybody else has to give up goods and services in order to have a reserve of dollars in order to buy oil. Even China has to have a reserve of... Why do you think they have a $1 trillion trade deficit with China? They have to have a reserve of dollars in order to buy oil. So U.S. power is based on the fact that oil flows freely through the Gulf. And here the, the largest refinery in the whole world was destroyed to a point where it can only produce half of what it was producing two weeks ago. And so once again, I, I ask you, you're spending billions upon billions upon billions of dollars on weapons and all of this military equipment and yet here you could not and this is the joint number of them Saudi Arabia, the United States, the UK, the EU, all of them couldn't protect the major oil refinery in the whole world you know one thing that comes to mind in this regard is that most of these 
very expensive sports cars like Ferraris and Lamborghinis and what have you the vast majority of them after they're bought for the first time are sold with less than 5,000 miles on them they're not an everyday commuting car like you and I you know we have cars that have 100,000 miles 200,000 miles you know what have you on them but these cars that only the super rich can afford they're sold generally speaking after they've only had less than 5,000 miles put on them and so in effect they're basically toys for the super rich and if you're the most super of the super rich you don't really get off on a toy like a Ferrari or a Lamborghini no you have to have the latest F-16 you have to have the latest cruise missiles and you have to have you know let's not call them slaves but that's what they are you have to have you know your drivers let's call them drivers operate your F-16s and your cruise missiles and so on and so forth so once you get tired of a particular toy then you go out and you buy another one and then another one and then another one and you don't really see that right across the Red Sea there are hundreds of millions of people who are starving you don't really even see that if you go into the north of the subcontinent there are millions upon millions of people who are suffering under the military oppression of a racist state that doesn't even consider them to be human beings you don't even see that the vast majority of these bombs and these planes and these missiles that you are purchasing that the vast majority of them are killing other Muslims like a person who's addicted to his video games having to have the latest one as soon as it comes out your world is not bigger than your television screen but there are things that are heartening in this whole equation and this is that the balance of power is beginning to change when you have one of the poorest countries on earth and believe me when you talk about Yemen they are one of the poorest countries on earth when you have one of the poorest countries on earth that can take one of the more powerful countries on earth back to the Stone Age then you know that the balance of power is shifting And this is something that we ought to be looking forward to. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan wa rizuqna attiba'ah. Wa arina al-baatila baatilan wa rizuqna ajtinaabah. Allahumma aghfir lil-mu'minina wal-mu'minat. Al-ahyai minhum wal-amwaat. Innaka qareebun sami'un mujibu da'wat. Allahumma rabbana atina fi al-dunya hasana. Wa fi al-akhirati hasana. Wa qina a'zaab al-nar. إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواسوا بالحق وتواسوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر في هسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم 
عباد الله إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة الله أكبر الله أكبر أشهد أن لا إله 